All right, everyone. So we are live today, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Sidegart. He is a biochemist with a PhD in biochemistry from City College in New York. Is that I believe that's correct, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was an atheist, and now he's a Christian. So today we're just going to talk a little about about his testimony and then some of the reasons he believes in God. And yeah, so thanks for coming on tonight, Sai. You're welcome. My pleasure. So we'll just hop right into it. So my first question for you is, how long were you an atheist for? (laughs) Well, uh, I was born into an atheist family. So uh, I'm not one of those atheists who gave up religion because I never had any. not only were my parents atheists, but so were my grandparents. And uh, every, all the relatives I ever met were atheists. <clears throat> so, yeah, I come from a very strong militant atheist family. <laughs> oh, wow. So, I, why, most of your life you spent as an atheist, why were you an atheist? So, well, as I said, I really didn't have any choice in the matter. <clears throat> Um, my family were, uh, my, my parents were actually members of the American Communist Party. They were in the thirties. So they were very strongly militant communists and atheism goes with communism. So, uh, there are very few communists who are not atheists. There probably are some, but they're fairly rare. And so, uh, that was true for the whole family as well, pretty much. And um, I just was brought up not hearing anything about God, certainly not Jesus or any kind of religious idea at all. And whenever I asked questions about it, I would hear from friends, school kids, etc. I would be told that religion was really an evil idea. It was oppressive. God this was not the weak atheism that, you know, you don't believe that God exists. This was a strong belief that it could not be anything as ridiculous as a magical God. And so that's what I grew up with. And I had no other alternative. The little bit that I knew about Christianity was some of my friends who went to Catholic school, but that was not very inspiring because they didn't know much theology. (laughs) So, you know, it was mostly, uh, it was mostly just um, the idea that that's reality. My father was a scientist also, like uh, he was a chemist. He was very strongly materialistic. He believed in, you know, uh, philosophical materialism. He was a rationalist. And so that's how I grew up. And um, that was my belief system. All right. So you were raised an atheist. So what led you to study biochemistry? Well, I I loved science. I loved two things. I loved history and science when I was in school. But I guess science won out because I didn't know what I would do as a history major. I didn't know what kind of job I would get. <laughs> so I decided uh, that I would study science, I, I almost dropped out of that because I was started as a biology major, but it was full of pre-med students and uh, 
I couldn't keep up with them. That that was too competitive. So I switched to chemistry, which I really loved. So my college degree is in chemistry. But what I really loved about chemistry was the way it going to be applied to life. So I decided to be a, go into biochemistry, which is I still think it's the best of all the sciences because <laughs> it's it's the most interesting. Yeah, definitely. Me. So, so I became a I got I got a PhD in biochemistry and started working in that area. Okay, so as you started to work in a scientific community, what was the religious beliefs, if any, of the scientific community like around you as you started working after you got your all your degrees? As far as I know, zero. Um, there might have been some religious people around where I was working, but I never found out about that. I think the closest I got to that was um, at one point I was in a university where uh, one of the people near me was a, a religious Muslim, and he was he was uh, not shy about his belief. Uh, but that was very rare. Uh, I knew a couple of Orthodox Jews who were also scientists. I knew a couple in graduate school. I didn't really know any Christians. I didn't, I didn't know of any. I think that's probably because they were being quiet about it. And uh, there may have been quite a few, but they didn't talk about it much. Um, in the academic circles in which I moved, which means where I worked at universities and when I would go to conferences, religion never came up. It just never was discussed. It was considered something, if anybody was religious, it was not something that they ever talked about. It was a separate part of life. So I, in terms of my working life, I had very little contact with anyone of any kind of religion, certainly not Christians. Okay, that's really not surprising, but I mean, surprising at the same time so why this is kind of this is kind of a big question why do you think there wasn't much of a if any of a christian influence around you in the scientific community i think there's a couple of reasons i mean we know that we know that science historically uh derived from um a christian community the original scientists were all christians uh, they were trying to study the creation to understand how God worked, how the creation was put together. And that includes all the way into the 19th century, um, Faraday and um, uh, Maxwell and all these uh, amazing scientists in physics and, and chemistry. They were all Christians. Um, not so much true in biology. Uh, and towards the turn of the 19th century uh, and the 20th century, atheism became much more fashionable. And also several books were written that kind of made it sound as if science and, and faith were opposite enemies of each other and you couldn't be one and the other. And they, that whole idea became very, very popular in the culture in general. And science was making all these strides and people were saying, well, science is better than religion. Science cures people. It makes great inventions. So, you know, I'm done with religion. I want to deal with science. And um, that's 
you know, has some validity at a very surface level. But the irony is that it was really uh, my studies of science that turned me against atheism because when I began learning things in, in physics and later also in biology, a little bit deeper than the surface, I began to see that there's something here besides pure chance and pure random movement of molecules and, you know, just spontaneous things happening without anything else. And I began thinking, well, maybe there is not a God, but I'm not sure you can say that for sure. There may be something out there. Yeah, it's a great, yeah, that's a great transition into the next question I had for you was, mm -hmm. so what were some of these, you talked about, these things that started to make you think, what were a few of these things that started to make you think, hey, there might be a creator or a designer, you could say? Hang on one sec. I just want to turn on the light. You're good. Okay. I realize it's getting dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Um, okay, so the first thing, I guess, that really sort of rocked me was learning about quantum mechanics. I had to learn it the Schrodinger equation in, in physical chemistry and in graduate school. And quantum mechanics just makes no absolute sense at all. I mean, my view of the universe had been that it's rational, it's logical, everything makes sense. Uh, no, that's not the way reality is. Uh, it, that's sort of a clockwork mechanical universe, which was very fashionable. 150 years ago, but when Einstein and Planck and Bohr and uh, Schrodinger and Heisenberg started working on physics, they found out that, well, there's a lot of mysterious stuff going on. And mystery doesn't seem to go with science, but if you read these people, all of these scientists, uh, Heisenberg was actually a Christian, and the others, when they, when they write philosophically, they use words like mystery and Things that, you know, I thought, well, that doesn't sound scientific when you talk about mystery. But, you know, there's this uncertainty principle that Heisenberg developed, which basically says that there are some things that we cannot know, no matter, and that'll never change. It's not a question of more research. We will never be able to know, based on very solid physical principles, the position and momentum of an electron at the same time. And that was puzzling to me because I thought, well, what else is there that we may not be able to know scientifically? And I eventually, that eventually became the bedrock of a, uh, of a philosophical sense that a great deal of the universe is probably beyond scientific understanding. And we don't have to look too far for that. All we have to do is look at things like art and love and humor and all sorts of human characteristics that uh, really don't are not easily explainable by any scientific method. Now, there are people who say that, oh, yeah, you can explain all of that by evolution. Love is just an emotion. It's hormones. It's molecules. It's neurons. Mm, that doesn't really work. It's, it's a just-so story. And evolution does not explain any of that. It doesn't explain how we are humans with these amazing abilities to talk to each other, you know, hundreds of miles away over a screen, <laughs> I mean, in real time. I mean, you know, this is, this is beyond anything that 
you would expect to get from a living creature, just an ordinary living creature. And certainly much more than anything you would expect to get from a collection of molecules that are simply obeying the laws of physics. Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I understand I understand complexity and emergence. I actually don't understand emergence. Emergence is a very important word because you know people like to say that chemistry emerged from physics and biology emerged from chemistry and human consciousness and creativity and all that emerged from biology. But we don't know what that means. We don't know what that word means. What is emergence? Well, I think it's the hand of God. Is what it is. I think that's clear. Uh, so, you know, but it took me a while to get there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So what would, what would you say to, let's say, an atheist who says, so we have these complex issues that we obviously, you know a lot better than I, that scientists can't understand completely at this point. So what would you say to the atheists that would say, hey, 300 years ago, we didn't know where people came from, but now we have, they came up with a theory of unguided Darwinian evolution. And like these big questions, they're eventually going to be answered in the next couple, couple of centuries. This century, they just need yeah. their own Darwin. I call that the atheism of the gaps. In other words, uh, we all know what the God of the gaps is. If you don't know something, you say God did it. But what the atheists, the atheism got, the atheism of the gaps is if we don't know something, well, we will later. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's legitimate to some extent. I mean, it's always a mistake to say we'll never know this or we'll never know that. But there are some things that I just mentioned, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that's not going to go away. That we're not going to suddenly, quote, solve the Heisenberg principle. That's a, a fundamental aspect of nuclear physics and the world, the, the universe would end if that Heisenberg principle didn't exist. So uh, that's not changing. And there are other things like that. that we're finding out more and more of them. There's the, uh, the Goodell's theorem, which is very interesting, uh, shows that you can't have a system like mathematics be both absolutely consistent and absolutely uh, logically consistent and absolutely uh, correct at the same time, which is very weird. Uh, we tend to think that arithmetic and mathematics in general is a pure logical construct that you know is always right, and he proved that that's not true. So things get really weird. And there are more and more of these examples in physics, and I'm beginning to think that we're going to see the similar things in biology. The difference is that biology is so much more complex, at least I think so, physicists might not agree, but that biology is, we're just beginning to look at how things work, and how they work is incredibly remarkable. I mean, it, it's a picture of immense beauty, and... Uh, and, and deep, uh, you, you just have to feel deep wonder and awe when you study biology. And if there are any other students listening, I will tell them, study biology, you too. <laughs> what I like to say is that, is that science is distilled doxology. When you learn science, you are learning about why you praise God because science tells us about God's creation. It tells us how, not so much how he did it, 
but it tells us what he did. And when we learn, for example, in life about some of the systems that go on in every living cell in the world, in, the, in, in this planet, the things that they can do, the way they can convert energy from one type to another, the way they make proteins, the way they uh, basically allow themselves to, to grow and prosper and change and take over niches. And stuff. It's, just, it's just incredible. And to think that this happened without some guiding hand is, to me, is incoherent. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. So maybe you could give me an example. You're talking about all these biology things. Maybe give me an example of one of these processes, or I think that's the correct term, of that just amaze you and say that yeah. there has to be a mind behind this. Yeah, this is very timely. I, uh, I think the last three or four days, maybe a little bit more than that, I've been tweeting. I usually tweet one tweet a day, sometimes two, but uh, I decided I was going to tweet about one of those systems, one of those processes. And that is, and, and those tweets are, you can find them, I guess they started a week ago. And they're all about how cells use energy. It's a very interesting question because we tend to take it for granted. Uh, sometimes you learn, oh, well, you know, the sun shines and, and, we, and, and energy from the sun is converted into living energy. But how does that happen? That's not an easy thing to do. And the way it happens is just unbelievably remarkable. I mean, what happens is uh, that we eat food and we eat food that's either plants or animals that ate plants. And the food that we eat is converted in our bodies to a molecule called glucose, which is a kind of a sugar. Most people have heard of that. And glucose goes through a whole series of reactions, which I don't describe in detail because it's much too complicated, but many, many reactions. And it even goes through a cycle called the Krebs cycle and that all of those reactions and all those cycles, all the reactions within the cycle end up producing hydrogen ions. Hydrogen ions are just a proton with no electron. And while all of that happens, uh, there is energy released from these uh, from these cycles and these reactions that go on, starting with glucose, and that energy pushes the protons across a membrane. Now, why is what is the purpose of that? Well, when the protons are on the other side of a membrane, you have a, what's called an osmotic imbalance. Okay, and that's so you got a lot of protons on one side of the membrane and only a few on the other. So the protons have a physical force to go back across the membrane, back across where they were pushed from. And they do. But the way they do it is they go through a hole, which is part of this amazing machine. It's a molecular machine. And as they go through the hole, they turn a protein wheel. It literally turns physically. And as it turns, it turns a shaft. This is like a water wheel turning a shaft. And when that shaft turns, it changes the shapes of a whole set of proteins right beneath it. And what is that? What those proteins do is they bind one molecule of what's called adenosine diphosphate. It's a 
It's a chemical that has two phosphates on it. And another phosphate, a third phosphate, comes in close to it and turning the wheel, turns the shaft, which pushes, pushes the proteins to push the third phosphate onto the other two. So now you have adenosine triphosphate, ATP. Adenosine triphosphate is a very high energy molecule. It's that third phosphate bond that has all the energy. And that molecule, ATP, is the battery that powers all of the reactions that go on in cells. And the way it's made is through this pumping of protons across a membrane, having them flow back through this machine called ATP synthase, which then makes this ATP. So what you have is the solar energy, the light energy is converted to make glucose in plants and other compounds. We eat the glucose, that's turning solar energy into chemical energy. We eat the, the glucose and the chemical energy is then turned into this chemiosmotic energy when the protons are pushed across the membrane. The chemiosmotic energy when the protons go back is turned into mechanical en energy by turning the wheel. And the mechanical energy is converted to back to chemical energy when it makes ATP. Pretty simple, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wish you, I mean, I tried to hang on. I think I understand the main idea. That's pretty amazing. It, Take a look it at my really tweet and, and you can look up, you can, all you have to do is Google ATP synthase and you will see many great videos of how this actually works in the cell. You'll see the wheel turning, you'll see the ATP being made, and that is the universal molecule with chemical energy that drives everything in life. Right now, in every single one of your cells, there are hundreds of thousands of ATP molecules being made and being used, and that's why you're alive. That's amazing, it, it amazes me that People will say that's just purely natural. So we'll move on here. So my next question for you is about the origin of life and that theory of abo. I think it's called abiogenesis. Uh, I, yeah. My question for you, is, for you is, do you think that there will be a naturalistic explanation for the origin of life, or could it only be of a divine influence? Well, I think, you see, the thing is, um i think there has to be a divine influence because we have no idea how the origin of life could have started we just don't have it we don't even have a theory and it's been 60 years that people have been working on this and we're no further than we were 60 years ago there are so many problems with a purely natural uh, let's start with this, and then you add that, and then you go to the next step. And, you... and one of the big problems is, especially for me, who agrees that evolution is the way life diverged, is you can't have evolution until you have the biochemical mechanism to allow evolution. And how did you get that? You have to have a genetic code, which is information. You have to have all these very complex systems that, by the way, are 10 times more complex than the one I just mentioned. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. So 
All of this has to be in place, and how do you get that? Nobody knows the answer to that. There's ideas about RNA world, or a lot of ideas that people have come up with. There's very little evidence. I'm not talking about that it happened. I'm talking about that it even could happen. So I think that, I, I don't think there's an answer that is, which is simply God did it. Because even if that's true, which I believe it is, I think God did everything. We still want to know how, okay? We still want to know what what did he do, okay? How did it all happen? And I don't know if we can find that out or not. We might not, We might need a different way to approach science than what we have now. Because now science is, by definition, naturalism only. In other words, methodological naturalism does not allow for anything other than what we can test in a laboratory, what we can show comes from purely naturalistic forces. That may not be, that may not work. We, I, I do not believe that we're gonna be able to find a purely naturalistic answer to the origin of life. And we haven't found one to the origin of the universe either. <laughs> Nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think when it comes to origins, and I would add the origin of humanity as well, I don't think we're going to get it from pure, pure naturalism. We're going to have to start looking at the Bible. We're going to have to look at Scripture. I don't know how to do. I don't know how to do that in relation to science, but hopefully someone will figure that out. Maybe you will. You're young enough. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, uh, we'll try to. I should remind everyone that's listening that we'll we'll try to get to some questions that are put in the chat, probably around like seven forty-five, seven fiftieth, fifty-ish before we end. But my next question for you, Sai, is you talk about how you transition sort of this belief in God. So you can believe in God, and not be a Christian. So what led you Correct. to become a Christian from and believing that Jesus rose from the dead from just yeah. believing God? That's a very good question. I mean, there was a point at which I I had I had gotten to the point of saying, well, I can't be an atheist anymore. I'll be an agnostic. I don't know whether God exists or not. And then I got to the point of thinking, eh, there's something out there. I don't know what it is. There's something out there that that has a hand in creation, has a hand in all of these emergences, et cetera. But I don't know what it is. And I and and I couldn't find any religious instruction on it i hadn't read the bible much and then i started reading the gospels and i was incredibly struck by this incredible story that made it all clear god had mercy on his creation us and sent his son to be a human being and live with us what a great idea okay that's how god came and said okay here I am. I love it when atheists say, where, if God exists, where is he? Well, he was there. <laughs> he was walking around talking. <laughs> what more do you want? <laughs> and, and the story of Jesus was re really struck me as beautiful and explanatory. Uh, and, of course, very radical and very interesting. But I still wasn't a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I started thinking... I would like to be a Christian, but I couldn't do it because my early training, my early upbringing in atheism was so strong that whenever I thought, I started going to church and I heard wonderful sermons, I heard all kinds of great things. And 
but I still was on the outside because every time I thought, well, maybe I, I could be a Christian. I thought, no, that's impossible. It's magic. It's not real. It's, you know, it just, it just, I couldn't get myself to go there. And there were times when I saw things, uh, when I was in Italy, for example, I saw, I went to churches and I saw some beautiful things and I, I felt very emotional, very spiritual, but I couldn't cross over that thing until <laughs> one day, and this was, I don't remember the exact year, but it was in the early 2000s, I was um, driving. And I should probably mention the book here because this story is told in detail in my book. Is, is, is this a good time I could mention? Yeah, no problem. Pretty much everything I've been saying about my journey uh, is in a book that I wrote, and it was, uh, it, it's been, uh, it's about to be published by Kriegel Publications, uh, which is a Christian publisher. It's called The Works of His Hands. It will come out in the fall, in November. And it's basically, the subtitle is A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And it really describes my journey uh, using, uh, including my scientific rationale. And there's one chapter where I talk about what actually happened and how I became a Christian. And that was by um, a visit from the Holy Spirit. Uh, as I was driving, I, I, began to basically speak to myself <laughs> in words. They were English words. I wasn't speaking in tongues, but they were words that I didn't know, and they were on a subject I didn't know anything about. And as I said, I don't want to give away too much because it's in, in detail in the book, but it was sort of a sermon that I was preaching. And when I was done, I realized that I had just preached to myself a message that did not come from myself. <laughs> and I was overwhelmed, overcome, I had to pull over. I was just incredibly emotional. And I knew then that I was a Christian at that moment. And from then on, um, scales fell every, you know, all the stuff that yeah. Peter that Paul talks about, all that happened. <laughs> And everything became clear. Uh, this was, I guess, roughly uh, 15, 15 years ago. And uh, from then on, I've never looked back. Wow, that's really, that's an awesome story how God worked in you. So when you converted to Christianity, I'm curious, what did your peers in the scientific community think? Did they think you were crazy or what? Your questions are great. I mean, <laughs> I, that's in the book too. <laughs> I guess I'm just trying to steal the book, you know? No, that's, I don't know. that's no problem. Uh, well, you know, I had, a, I had to deal with a lot of stuff. And in fact, I think the chapter is called, But What About? Because <laughs> when you call yourself a Christian and all of a sudden now you, you know, you have to deal with all these things. I'll be honest with you, I kept it quiet. I didn't know a single other uh, Christian scientist at all. Um, and I didn't know what to say. I, I, this faith that I had was very private. Uh, I went to church, but nobody knew I was going. No, none of my colleagues. I didn't tell my 
some of my close friends. I didn't tell many of my relatives, any of my relatives. Um, it was it was my own personal thing. I was not a member of a church. I was not baptized. And uh, that went on for quite a few years. And then uh, Francis Collins, who perhaps you've heard of, or many people have heard of, who was the head of NIH and a brilliant scientist, I mean, really at a high, at the top level of science, uh, and now the head of NIH, as I said, um, he wrote a book called The Language of God, which was a beautiful book. And it was the first time I understood that there were other people like me. There were other Christians who were scientists, or there were other scientists who were Christians. And and like Francis, because uh, one of the things I thought is, well, now I'm a Christian, I have to give up evolution, I can't think about science, you know, everything, I have to believe in a young earth, and no, none of that was true. And Francis, you know, is is uh, an incredible Christian. Uh, I, I've gotten to know him. Uh, also, I worked at NIH, so I met him there, but I've also gotten to know him through the, the faith uh, aspect, and he's a wonderful man, a brilliant scientist, like I said, and a real role model for me. And then I began to meet so many other Christian scientists uh, who are the same. And there are many organizations now. Uh, I'm very active in the American Scientific Affiliation, ASA, which is uh, a, a long standing association of scientists uh, who are Christians. And uh, uh, I am the editor-in-chief of one of their magazines, an online magazine called God and Nature. You can find that on my Twitter profile. There's a link. And uh, I'm very. this is what I retired four years ago, and I'm now devoting my life to Christ, and especially to the mission. I consider myself to have a mission, which is to bring the word to especially students, the young people who are Christians who are in danger of losing their faith because people are telling them, well, if you want to follow science, you have to give up all that phony religion stuff. That is not true. And that is the purpose of my book. That's the target audience of my book. And I'm not alone. Many people are doing this. It's really important that we counteract this big lie, which is that science and religion are opposed to each other. And we have to counteract it on the part of the atheists. We have to counteract it when it's spoken by some young earth creationists. Uh, mainstream, regular, ordinary, good as gold science is perfectly consistent with being a Christian and believing the Bible as real and inerrant. I mean, none of that has to, you don't have to give up anything. You may have to change your interpretation of a few passages, but not the way people think. And uh, and meanwhile, you gain everything. You gain the whole world because this is God's book of works. And you gain scripture and you lose nothing. Yeah, definitely. It's actually, you're transitioning perfect into my next questions, you know. It's like <laughs> we, got some, we got some chemistry going on here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So my next question for you was, is I know that you've talked about how you believe in evolution in an old earth. Now, a lot of Christians will say, hey, the Bible says that the earth is about 6,000 years old and there's no evolution, basically. So how did you? Well, first of all, I read the Bible <laughs> and it doesn't say that at all. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so when people say, oh, I take a literal view of the Bible, they're, they're not, that's not true. They don't. Uh, you, you know, the age of the earth is never mentioned in the Bible. That was a uh, conclusion reached in the 1600s by Bishop Usher, who did some calculations. So that's an interpretation. Okay, that's not in the Bible. That's not part of the text. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Bible also never says that Adam was the first man. <laughs> it says there was there was no man to work the ground, which means there were no farmers, and so Adam had to till the had to take care of the garden. It never says there were no other people around. It never says Adam was the first man. It just doesn't say it. So we get a lot of interpretation, which then becomes the Bible tells us. No, the Bible doesn't. This is your interpretation of the Bible. And that, that's true for a lot of things. Uh, so, you know, uh, there, there are some very good people who have written about this at length. Uh, 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 an author I would recommend is Dennis Lamoureux. He's a Canadian uh, evolutionary biologist. He has a PhD in evolutionary biology and a PhD in theology. And he's also a dentist. So he has three advanced degrees. <laughs> Brilliant guy, he's a good friend of mine. He's written several books in this area and describes theistic evolution and evolutionary creationism very well. Uh, now there are a lot of there are a lot of you know we can argue. I don't think I have all the answers. I don't think anyone does. Sometimes I feel like I'm more with the intelligent design camp, especially when it comes to the origin of life. Uh, so you know this is this is I think God wants us to work. He doesn't. He didn't just give us the answer and say, okay, here it is now, you know, do your thing. And he wants us to work at finding the truth. And that means, I mean, I know how hard scientific work is because I've been doing it. And I'm beginning to think theology is even harder. And we need to work at it. We need to work at understanding what it is that God really said and what he meant and why he wrote the Bible. Was it a science textbook? I don't believe so. Uh, are we supposed to believe, you know, the, the, quote, unquote, literal uh, version of King James. Sometimes, yes, not always. And there, John Walton and uh, N.T. Wright, uh, Alistair McGrath, those are three theologians who I read and I also know. And, you know, oh, by the way, uh, Alistair McGrath wrote a foreword to my book, so uh, it passed some muster with theology, <laughs> even though I don't know much myself. Uh, but these theologians and many others are, you know, very helpful. And so I think if you're in a position where you're being pulled between science on the one hand and young earth creationism on the other hand, and they don't seem to go together, don't give up. Don't give up on either one. Don't give up on science. Don't give up on your faith, especially don't give up on your faith. Do more research. Look at biologos.org, which is a great organization for giving resources for you know, understanding science and faith. Uh, and you will come to see that, you know, as we expect from God, the answer is beautiful and it's not that hard to find. So that's my main, my main message is, uh, ignore those voices who are telling you, you can't have it all. You can have it all because it's all God's truth. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll just play young earth i mean i'm kind of i'm not going to pick a side here i'm just going to play young earth creationist here for a moment just because i know you're sure. obviously not of that view so they would say that 
with the 6,000 year earth thing, they would say that you can trace those genealogies that in, are in Genesis 5 and 11, I believe, back to Adam when that'd be, I think it's like the 6,000 years. So I'm curious, what's your thoughts on those genealogies? Well, all, all I can tell you is what I've read from other people, which is that the genealogies sound very convincing when you read them in the text, but we don't really know whether those genealogies are complete, whether they were supposed to go back to Adam. Uh, we don't know if if the purpose of the genealogy was something very different than talking about age ages. Uh, we don't know um, if there are if if the genealogies, you know, are intact. I think I said that already. I mean, there could be large gaps in them. Uh, the purpose of the genealogies was not anything to do with demonstrating the age of the earth because nobody cared about the age of the earth in those days. That only became an issue very recently. Uh, what the, the purpose of them was, was to show that the tribe of Israel, which is where all these people existed, came directly from the first original Adam. Okay. And uh, so that's what it does. It accomplishes that goal and it gives all the all these people in between. But for all we know, these people represented tribes. They may not have been actual individual people. I can't really speak about this much because I'm not a biblical scholar, but there are plenty of plenty of biblical scholars who will say that uh, you know it's not a given. I mean, it, it this this calculation wasn't done until, as I said, the 16th century. You have to ask why didn't the earlier church fathers do the same calculation? It was available. They knew how to add. It was available to everyone, and I think the answer was because it doesn't make sense. That's not that was not the purpose of the genealogy. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll do play young earth for one to hear more. So, a lot of times from their camp, you'll hear the argument that of the idea that it says that there was evening and then there was morning, like that it would say that those would be literal days. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard one to argue with, and I honestly don't know the answer because I I agree that it really says days. I will tell you that I have read, but I don't have it in my in my head or to hand. That I have read very good explanations, mostly from John Walton, about uh, the meaning of days. And it and even though the day is supposed to be a day, the idea uh, that Walton has, and and there's a great YouTube by Inspiring Philosophy, uh, who has a, who has a really wonderful YouTuber, uh, Michael Jones, uh, is uh, he has a great video on this whole question of the of the day, the meaning of the days, and how there is a fascinating way to interpret the way the days line up with each other and what they what they actually represent. And although they may have been days they probably weren't 24-hour days because you remember that the sun was made on one of those days and <laughs> how do you you know you don't get 24-hour day if there's no sun so uh, there's something going on um and there are some other reasons to think that 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 is cannot be an absolute literal day and just just looking at day six when an awful lot happened in 24 hours so uh you know i i i don't like to say that that the Bible is wrong because I don't think it is, but you can you can have a misinterpretation of something that's true, and then you come up with the wrong conclusion. And what I like to say is that you know God 
God didn't write the Bible with his hand, despite what Kent Hovind seems to think. Uh, he inspired the human writers to put the words on, to put the words to parchment. And we don't know how that process happened. And there could have been lots of errors in the transcribing. There could have been lots of errors in understanding. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is outside of my, my area of expertise. I'm not a, a theologian. A theologian, this is obvious. But all I can say is that it, you can read Genesis and you can read the rest of the Bible. Job is one of my favorite books. Uh, and from there, you can get a general feeling that, you know, without, without picking out every, every detail, which is also what the eight. I mean, one thing that strikes me is that atheists and younger creationists are in total agreement about the Bible. If you ever look at what an atheist says, they sound like a younger creationist. They will take every line and say, well, the Bible says this, so how can you believe that, you know? Uh, and it's, they take out of context. They take things out of context. They take things out of the spiritual dimension in which it was written. And the younger creationists are doing the same thing. It's when they do that kind of thing. Now, in terms of the days, again, I have to come back and say, I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm pretty sure the world was not created in six days, just based on the scientific evidence that we have. So uh, I know that there are some scientists with some ideas that kind of concord, do a concordance between the scripture and what we know. And I just don't know enough about it. Hugh Ross is someone who, who would be a very good person to talk to about that. He's a much better theologian than me and also a much better scientist. So you may want to, you know, it would be good to talk to him about his views. Yeah, he's, he's a great. Hey, Sorry. if you're listening, Hugh, you're welcome anytime. I know you're probably not listening. Um, so my last question for you before we go into a couple just questions from the live chat is, so you have a massive Twitter following. I think it's like eleven or 12,000 followers. So 13 and a half, something like that. 13 and a half. My bad. I underestimated you. Oh, no. <laughs> um, my question for you is, how do you handle some of what you call the trolls of Twitter who can like just be ho very hostile towards Christianity? Don't say there's no evidence for God, things like that. I'm just curious how you, your thoughts on. So that. I have three, I have three rules. Uh, if somebody asks a question and I have a lot of these, I, I did a few today. Uh, I get a lot of atheists who just say, um, but how, how can you explain such and such? Or why do you think this? And then I answer them. I'll answer them twice. I don't go into a lot of, <laughs> I, I don't like to you know, keep answering over and over. But usually that's enough. I answer the question and usually they're okay. Then I have the ones who just make nasty comments like, uh, go follow your sky daddy or whatever. And I ignore those. I, I mute them and I don't pay any attention to them because they're there. They're there just to, for their own purposes. They're not, they're not interested in a dialogue. They're not interested in learning. They're not really interested in much. And the third group, which is rare, but not as rare as I hope, <laughs> are people who actually insult me. And they tell me I'm not a scientist, I'm a fraud, and many, many worse things, which I won't repeat. And I immediately block those. And I, I've made this public many times. Uh, one insult gets you blocked permanently. Because, and the reason for that is I, I come from a scientific culture, and you don't insult people in science. Even if you do disagree with them vehemently, it's just not done. And even before that, before I was a professional scientist, when I was young, I grew up in a fairly 
uh, interesting neighborhood in Brooklyn where uh, also you don't insult people because if you do, you're probably going to get shot. So I find this insulting in by anonymous people online to be the height of cowardice. So when somebody tells me I'm a you know I'm an old fool or something like that, my first thought is to uh, act in a very unchristian way. <laughs> but uh, my second thought is I don't want to see this, so I just block them and they're gone. All right, yeah. So, so we're gonna go into this is some Q and A. So we'll read through some questions, and if anyone else has questions, you can put them in the live chat, and we'll see what we got. So my first question, the first question is from old things pass away. They say, how might you view perception in terms of the mind's predictive qualities? Do you mm. think me measurements like light or gravity change from our perspective? Hmm. Well, light and gravity definitely change from our perspective. We know that. Uh, light, for example, uh, you know, it, 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 light can take all kinds of forms as, as, we, as we, you know, watch, for example, uh, a source of light in the water versus in the air versus up in space. Uh, gravity also. Um, you know, the, it's a very good question about the mind's perception because we, you know, what I, I have said to people is, uh, you know, we perceive a lot of solidity where there really isn't any. I mean, I'm now I'm putting my hand on my computer and I feel like it's solid, but it's not solid at all. It's mostly empty space. So why do we perceive it as solid? Well, we need to. That's how, you know, that's part of evolution of animals is that uh, we, we can't see things and feel things and understand things the way they really are because we wouldn't be able to deal with it. So it, what we have is we have uh, our, our senses and our fingers feel the uh, electrostatic interaction with the molecules that we're touching and it makes it, it, it resists us and we feel like it's solid. But all of matter is composed mostly of empty space. Every atom has a tiny nucleus at the center and a huge uh, empty space where the electrons are. And uh, we don't see that. We, we can't feel that. We don't perceive it, even though that's the reality. So how yeah, that all yeah. worked, it's, I think it's part of it is evolution, uh, and part of it is God's grace. Uh, I think we were created uh, to do what we're doing, which is to understand the world as it is. Yeah, it's a great answer. Um, next question from SJ says, do you side? Do you think biology departments are hostile towards Christians and theists today? She says, "I heard William Lane Craig say they're more hostile than physics departments." Yes, I agree with her. Um, the most, the science which is most amenable to philosophy in general, and especially to philosophy that verges on the mysterious, is is physics. The worst is biology, and I don't know why that is. Biologists tend to be much more atheistic in general. There are more atheists among biologists, I think. This is just anecdotal. I haven't done any surveys. Um, and biologists are often uh, more vehemently atheistic than physicists. A lot of physicists will say, well, I don't know about that. I maybe maybe." Biologists will often, I mean, Jerry Coyne, for example, is an example. He has a blog uh, which is very hostile to any hint of 
faith, and he spends all his time talking about that rather than biology. Uh, and there are others. Uh, there are a few exceptions uh, to that, but I think SJ's right that, unfortunately, at least at this point, uh, biology uh, is really um, actively hostile towards the idea of faith. And I, I hope that changes. Uh, I wrote a paper on teleology in biology, and, I, and it was published in um, a journal of the ASA, which I mentioned before, called Perspectives in Science and Christian Faith. And even in that journal, which is read by Christians and was reviewed by Christians, there were some biologists who weren't happy with my talking about teleology purpose in life. And it's silly because, you know, you always, you know, the fox is, is hunting because he's hungry and he wants to catch food. He has a purpose <laughs> for his actions. It's not random. So the idea that there's no purpose in biology is just so absurd. I, I don't know, but it's, it's caught on. It's hard to overcome. Yeah, definitely. So we have one last question here for you again. Uh, Old Things Pass Away again says, do you ever dabble in the original languages in the Bible? I have not. No, I'm terrible at language. I will read what other people say. Um, the only exception was the story about Adam, which I mentioned. I did look at the Hebrew, uh, the, the, the uh, Hebrew text, and I tried to translate it, you know, from the word, each word. And I don't really know Hebrew, so I don't know if I was doing it right. But uh, it, 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 it clearly does not say uh, the first man. It just says the man, uh, the man, I, let's see if I remember right. There was no man to, to work the ground. Anyway, but other than that, no, I, I mean, I know a lot of people who are Hebrew scholars. There's some great ones on YouTube and on Twitter. Uh, IP is, again, inspiring philosophy is a great example of that. Mike Winger is obviously a scholar in, in this area. There are many good scholars, but no, uh, languages, I barely can speak uh, <laughs> two languages. I lived in Italy for 10 years. I barely learned the language. So. <laughs> there's one more question here before we uh wrap things up uh they say where would you start with when say sorry it says where would you start with studying science and christianity being compatible i would start with uh, biologos.org uh there's a lot on there there's a lot of articles there are all different areas uh that's the purpose of that organization now you may not agree with everything that they say. There are some of the things that they say, for example, about evolution of man, which I don't agree with completely. Uh, I do believe that God created man in his image. I, I don't think evolution explains it all. Um, but it doesn't matter because they will give you resources and you can read for yourself. And of course, if you can wait till November, you can buy my book and read it all there. It's <laughs> great. <laughs> There's a list of books uh, that uh, I have tweeted before, and I'll probably do it again uh, from many of them from friends of mine, but also some people I don't know who have um, really good, or they're all good introductions. One that if, if you're kind of on the young side, there's a book written for young folks by Andy Walsh called uh, Across the Multiverse, and he uses, he used, I'm pretty old, so I don't know a lot of this stuff, but he uses uh, uh, references to, you know, various films and 
and current cultural stuff and talks about uh, the whole idea of Christianity being compatible with science. And uh, I would recommend that one. It's quite popular. Came out about a year ago. Yeah, it's great stuff. So we are going to wrap it up there. I just want to say thank you so much again for Sai for coming on today. It was really a great time. I learned a lot. I'm sure everyone else did. And I would encourage everyone to buy his book in November when it comes out. I would encourage you, you can follow him on Twitter and his website is in the description. And on our terms, if you want to see more of our stuff, please subscribe, uh, like this video so more people can see the amazing Saigart. And our social media is in the description. If you want to become a Patreon and financially support us, that's in the description. And yeah, that's all I have. So thank you so much for coming on, Sai. It's been fun. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. So thanks for listening and have a great night. Remember, big questions need good answers.